Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. The Asset tells the story of Donald Trump and Russia. It's about the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of the President of the United States. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy back from the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 12th. Today, the family of Eric Garner has their last hope for justice. The potential perks of being impeached and a World Cup blowout that's getting blowback. So the officer involved in the death of Eric Gardner in 2014 in New York City, Daniel Pantaleo, has been having an administrative hearing. Wesley Lowry is a reporter for The Post, and he's been covering this disciplinary hearing for the New York police officer who was involved in the death of Eric Garner five years ago, a death that in many ways changed how the country thinks about police brutality. You know, Eric Gardner's death is one of the most important events in the history of the NYPD. It's one of the first deaths that starts to spark what we end up considering the Black Lives Matter movement. Part of why Garner's death became such a galvanizing force was because it was caught on camera. Are you serious? Garner was a bigger man who was standing on a hot street corner. I didn't sell anything! He was known in the neighborhood. He very often sold Lucy's loose cigarettes. But on that day, according to all the witnesses and the people are saying in the video, he'd broken up a fight. The guy right here is forcibly trying to lock somebody up for breaking up a fight. Two officers approach him, one from the back, one from the front. Hold on, hold on, hold on. The officer in the back, Officer Panzaleo, ends up kind of jumping on Gardner's back. His arm wraps around Gardner's neck and they fall to the ground and and Eric Garner, as he's kind of gasping for air, says, I can't breathe 11 times. At least the first few times, the officer remaining on his back and other officers attempting to handcuff him as he's saying this. Now, Eric Garner ends up dying. was something very upsetting to a lot of people. So I Can't Breathe became one of the crucial rallying cries around police reform protests we saw the last few years. The grand jury considering criminal charges in Eric Garner's death has 23 members. I'd like the the New Yorkers to be patient. The grand jury has uh, been diligently listening to evidence. Right to that explosive grand jury decision, no indictment for a New York City police officer in the death of Eric Garner from a chokehold. Even with a video, Ferguson, don't you see? The video didn't mean nothing. It didn't mean nothing. So what we now know is that the grand jury process, the prosecution process, is going to be remarkably permissive to police officers. The police officers are very rarely charged when they kill someone because the law allows for them to kill people. So this disciplinary hearing within the department is really, for Eric Garner's family, their last chance at any form of justice in their eyes. Certainly. Yes. No, this is the hearing that will decide, will the officer who was most involved in Eric Garner's death face any type of formal repercussion uh, for the fact that Eric Garner ended up dying that day. Wesley was one of the journalists who packed into this room on the fourth floor of NYPD headquarters to witness this disciplinary trial. 
It is technically open to the public, but it's also kind of like a HR hearing. There's no audio or video or photo recording in the room. All of this information was going to be presented in the public, but if someone didn't write it down, it would go away. There are so many officers that should be... So the only times we were able to kind of directly record or take photos were outside of the building, not even just outside of the courtroom. We had to be all the way outside of NYPD. And so what would happen is every single day after the hearing would end, the legal teams would come out first, the officer's legal team, his lawyers, the police union, and they would give kind of a short press conference and there would be all types of demonstrators and protesters yelling and screaming at them. And then Eric Garner's family and their supporters would come out. The next speaker is Gwen Carr, mother of Eric Garner. Good afternoon, everyone. Here I am again. It is just heart that five years has gone by and there's nothing been done. We saw this video five years ago. And you know, Eric Garner's mother is not in the best health. Eric Garner's daughter, Erica Gardner passed away during the last five years. She was one of the leading voices on, on his behalf. It has been a really difficult process on Eric Gardner's family. And, and one of the things that makes it even more difficult is that they're just now encountering additional information, right? Because this is the first hearing, they're learning new things about a death that happened so long ago, right? And it's hard to imagine having a loved one die and you're years later still piecing the puzzle together about what happened. So tell me about this hearing. What did you see there, and what were the most important moments that, that you saw? You're inside NYPD headquarters, and it's kind of heavily surveilled. They're being really specific about who can come in, who can't. You can't bring any, you know, phones or laptops or anything like that into the room. There was typically a ton of folks waiting outside hoping to get in, right, because there are ostensibly seats for the public. And so every day you would have dozens of activists and other people show up, and in reality there would be six or seven seats for the public, right, and, and maybe a dozen seats for the media. Now, it's set up like a courtroom. You've got the officer sitting up front with his attorneys from the police union. You've got prosecutors from the civilian review board that are kind of sitting on the right. You have a deputy commissioner sitting up front in a judge's seat, and Throughout the course of this trial, they're calling witnesses, the other officers who are there, medical experts, police training, tactical experts, to try to build this argument, right? Now, the core of this debate is, did Daniel Pantaleo violate the chokehold policy of NYPD, right? A chokehold is something that's been banned by the department since the 80s. You can't, under any circumstance, use it. And so if Daniel— Because there is such a risk of potentially suffocating someone Mm -hmm. while they're in a chokehold. Yes, when you block someone's airway— they can't breathe and they die, right? And, and so that and even if you're not attempting to kill someone, right, any type of tactic that involves blocking someone's neck or obstructing their airway could lead to them dying. And so NYPD and most major departments say, don't do it. So this became this like really semantic and tactical argument for days and days and days about was this technically a chokehold? Was this something else? What was he trying to do that day? And for the attorney who is basically serving as Officer Pantaleo's defense, what is his argument for why this chokehold isn't actually a chokehold or isn't a violation of police policy? So much like a criminal trial, the burden of proof here is on the prosecutors. They have to prove that this thing did happen as opposed to the defense having to prove that it didn't, right? Their defense was kind of multi-layered. The first was that, look— 
what was Daniel Pantaleo trying to do? And so they put on a bunch of witnesses talking specifically about a seatbelt hold, which is a totally different type of hold, right? A chokehold is defined as like anything that blocks an airway. The seatbelt hold is a hold where you come up from behind someone and you wrap your arms around them across their chest like a seatbelt. So one arm goes up under their armpit, the other one goes over their shoulder, and then you, you lock your hands in, in a seatbelt. What Daniel Pantaleo's defense team argued was that that's what he was attempting to do because Eric Garner was resisting so furiously and because he was so big, it was impossible to actually execute it correctly. He incidentally ended up with his arm around his neck and that the reason Eric Garner ends up dying is not because he was being choked out, but rather because he was obese and because he was resisting and he gave himself an asthma attack and then he gave himself a heart attack, right? And what you recounted, that seemed like a really stark moment to me, the fact that you had this attorney standing in front of Eric Garner's family saying the reason that this man died is because he was obese and unhealthy and not because of what police did to him. There were a lot of really kind of tense moments in the courtroom around this. So in the audience was Eric Garner's mother, the mothers of many other Black men who've been killed by the NYPD, Eric Gardner's widow, at least one of his children, his brother. And so there were moments when the defense would say things like this, where there would be gasps, that sometimes there'd be boos and commentary from the audience, and it created a lot of tension. There was at least one or two moments where the defense team for Daniel Pantaleo asked for people to get kicked out of the courtroom, and the judge said, well, no, I'm not going to do that, but would remind people, look, look, you can't talk. So there was a lot of kind of back and forth. I mean, there was another moment where... Daniel Pantaleo's partner is on the stand and they're going through the video clip by clip, frame by frame. And they're saying, well, where do you see Officer Pantaleo's arm in this clip, in this frame? And he goes, oh, well, his arm is up near Eric Garner's head area, uh, you know, between his chest and his head. And is around his neck. And the prosecutors go, between his, between his head and his chest? You mean around his neck? And he goes, you know— up between his head and his chest, and the Garner family is like, this <laughs> bewildered ped- by pedantic this. Pedantic argument that sort of is not acknowledging what everyone can see on video. Certainly, and I think that was the core of a lot of this trial. The Eric Garner case was a case where the facts of the matter were not particularly disputed. We watched almost the entire incident play out on video. You can see pretty clearly what happens. And yet... These things aren't decided. Accountability or justice aren't decided based on what we can see in the video. Rather, it's based on these hyper-specific and at times pedantic and hyper-technical HR proceeding about did someone intend to violate a policy? Is this technically a chokehold or could it be argued that it's something else? Maybe the medical examiner is wrong. Maybe he didn't die from an asthma attack. Maybe it was really a heart attack. You know, and so – This entire hearing, this question about whether or not the officer would be held to account, really (laughs) what we saw in the video could or could not matter. And and I think that that's where there's a big difference, a big gulf between the public's expectation about how these things happen. Hey, I saw that video and it was so clear what happened, hold the guy accountable, and what our processes actually allow for. So now that this hearing has concluded, what happens next? So now the deputy commissioner who oversaw the trial who served as the judge, she has time to write a report and make recommendations. She gives that to the commissioner. And then the commissioner unilaterally makes a decision about whether or not Officer Pantaleo will be punished. There is an expectation that this will probably, the commissioner will probably make a decision by the summer, but there's no guarantee that 
we'll know anytime soon what happens to this officer, if anything happens to the officer. What do you think that this hearing says about the prospect of justice for Eric Garner, for his family? I think that what this process has shown, in the same way that many of these similar processes played out around the country on similar shootings and similar police deaths, shows how our system fundamentally is not structured to hold police officers to account, that we've built a system that is largely permissive of police behavior because we understand police officers have a hard job, that they're placed in dangerous situations. But because the system bends so much in favor of the officers, in cases where the public is actually outraged, is actually upset, where they've watched on video a killing that the public believes to be unjust, and I think that most people watching that video do find themselves upset by what they see in it, the system itself is not set up to expeditiously <laughs> adjudicate these things, much less produce outcomes that are in line very often with the public. Now, who knows what's going to happen here? I think the department could handle it in any number of ways. It is kind of a political decision, right? It's not a math equation. It's a subjective decision, what the judge believes should happen and then what the commissioner ends up deciding to do. But what we see here is that I think everyone agrees, whether it be the officer and his family and his supporters and the Gardner family and the thousands, if not millions of people who've rallied around them, Everyone agrees that this is a process that shouldn't have dragged on for five years, that there should have been answers one way or the other. And, and the reason this dragged on is because of these processes. Wesley Lowry is a national correspondent for The Post. It may well be that Donald Trump wants to be impeached because he knows that in the Senate, you know what you need? Two thirds of the United States Senate. And right now there are 47 Democrats and not all of them today would impeach Trump. There's this idea floating around about President Trump that's gaining traction among Democrats. There is basically out in the ether this idea that impeachment would be politically beneficial for the president. That's Ashley Parker. I am a White House reporter for The Washington Post. The theory is that the White House is almost sort of double dog daring the Democrats to try to impeach the president. That the White House almost is trying to get the Democrats to impeach Trump because they believe it will get him reelected in 2020. To be clear, Ashley's reporting suggests that the president does not actually want to be impeached. To me, it's a dirty word, the word impeach. It's a dirty, filthy, disgusting word. But she also says that there's some truth to the idea that the president sees a potential political win if he were to be impeached. He, in some ways, is kind of impeachment curious, which is to say he, look, on a couple of levels, one thing is this is the president who has been told about and understands what happened to Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton was impeached. And on the one hand, it's a decent political analogy because the House impeached Bill Clinton and the Senate did not move on it. Bill Clinton was not removed from office, which seems like what would happen in this case as well were Democrats to go forward. 
And in Bill Clinton's approval, ratings were boosted by impeachment. It backfired on the Republicans and it helped President Clinton. So Trump sees that potentially happening for himself. Of course, Bill Clinton was in his second term. He was not in the middle of an, a reelect, but same thing. And then this is a president who also understands on a gut visceral level that he is at his best when he has a foe, when he has a single opponent. And if Democrats go after him for impeachment, he has a very easy way to hit Democrats and whoever the Democratic nominee is basically every single day. And I think that you've seen that in the way that he communicates publicly about the idea of impeachment, right? That he is not ignoring the prospect of being impeached. He talks about it all the time. He brings it up in tweets. He brings it up in public statements that that he is in some ways enlivened by the prospect of people considering whether to impeach him. Yeah, it's very much on his mind. And in a Reporting the story, this was one of the issues where there's a couple of topics within the White House where we find out Trump has said something privately that he hasn't said publicly. And it's a huge deal because it it's an offensive statement about a group of people or another country or undermines an existing public policy. But then there's this other area where what the president says privately is very much what he says publicly. And that's largely the case with impeachment. This is on his mind. He is he is asking about it when he sees cable news talking about it. He then, you know, asks his aides like, well, well, would they really do it? How would it work? And, and more so, I've been told in a defiant way, right? Like, they wouldn't dare. They couldn't possibly impeach me because I've done nothing wrong. He's sort of privately and publicly said he would maybe sue if the Democrats were to move forward with impeachment. And he's— Which is sort of questionable whether that's actually part of the process of, it, of impeachment is suing to the Supreme Court. Yes, it is certainly not the most commonly accepted or mainstream method of handling an impeachment inquiry. <laughs> One of the parts about the calculus that Democrats are doing right now is, yes, there is something to be said for calling the president to account, but also that Democrats see a real path to getting the presidency by talking about the issues that matter to average Americans, right? Which in many cases is not impeachment. It's things like health care and infrastructure and social services and, and stuff that affects people's day-to-day lives. And so... Their thinking is that when you talk about impeachment all the time, that means that you're not actually talking about the things that might get Democrats elected. On the flip side, how does President Trump and folks in the White House view those choices of whether it would be more helpful for them to be able to talk about the witch hunt and impeachment for the next year and a half or talking about things like health care and infrastructure? Right. So just briefly going back to the Democrats, the Democrats kind of learned in 2016 with Hillary Clinton and the way they ran that campaign against now President Trump that you actually have to affirmatively be for something and stand for something and you can't just demonize your opponent. That it, that would not work for the Democrats against Trump in 2016. For the president, it, it's an interesting argument. On, on the one hand, they think that just chatter of impeachment, especially impeachment chatter without the actual impeachment proceedings, is a real political winner because it allows them to, again, point paint the Democrats as sort of radical blood sport leftists who are sore losers and, you know, are so focused on impeaching the president that they, they're not getting anything done. The flip side is there is an acknowledgement that at the same time, while impeachment talk and chatter is going on, Trump is actually not really getting anything done. And one thing that while it would be helpful for the Democrats to have some affirmative things to run on, it would be maybe helpful for the president to have some affirmative things to run on. At this point, it's very clear there's going to be no bipartisan big ticket legislative items passing Congress. But 
you know, there was still maybe a little hope for infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure deal. There was a little hope for, you know, the USMCA trade deal. They rolled out an immigration plan. I don't know if there was ever any hope for that, but that was something they they talked about and are doing. And the president himself said to Democrats when he refused to go to an infrastructure meeting and instead held a Rose Garden press conference attacking them for daring to consider the I word, as he calls it. He basically said, while you are trying to impeach me, we are not going to work together on anything. And so it looks bad for the Democrats, but there's some thinking that it maybe looks bad for the president, too. Ashley Parker is a White House reporter for The Post. Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. Listen to the story of the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of Donald Trump to President of the United States. Download and listen today. And now, one more thing. It's the United States against Thailand in Rance. Flip ball back in. Morgan doubles the United States lead. 4 0. It is number six. Number seven. Nine. Ten. Is it going to be 13? It is. On Tuesday, the U.S. women's soccer team won a resounding victory in their first game of the World Cup. The final score against Thailand was 13-0, the biggest point difference of any World Cup game in history. USA fans are celebrating this one. You don't see 13-0 results at a World Cup. I mean, soccer is a typically low-scoring game. Even when there are blowouts, you know, usually you're talking maybe three, four, nothing. Stephen Goff writes about soccer for The Post. He's in France covering the tournament. And he says the U.S. team has faced some criticism for not going easy once they knew that they were going to win. I think people are critical of the U.S. women because of the number of goals they scored, but you know, soccer's a unique game. You can't pull all your starters. You're only allowed three substitutes. The coach, Jill Ellis, made all three substitutions. And this is a World Cup championship. And so to ask a team to stop playing, essentially, for 20, 25, 30 minutes is is unrealistic. And in a way, it's it's disrespectful to the other team because you're saying, well, you don't even belong on this field. We're not going to go forward anymore. I mean, I think, you know, I would say to you is this is a world championship. So every team that's here has, has been fantastic to get to this point. And I think that to be respectful to opponents is to play hard against opponents. As the U.S. coach Jill Ellis said, it's it's she doesn't feel a responsibility to rein in her team. They're, they are playing. They want to build momentum and uh, they want to they win a World Cup. The games are games and you got to go out and play and you got to compete. And, and a lot of this is about building momentum. And so as a coach, it's, you know, I, I don't find it my job to go and harness my players and rein them in because this is what they've dreamt about. This is, you know, this is it for them. This is a world championship. The issue of resources for women's soccer programs around the world has been a big issue. There are traditional soccer playing countries 
that don't seem to care much for the women's team. They don't provide the resources, the development programs, the the coaching. And so there's just a handful of countries, including the United States, uh, Germany, England, France, where they really make an effort um, on behalf of their women. So, you know, a result like this, um, you know, perhaps will spur other programs to, to, to put more money into it so they can compete. They're obviously good enough to get to a World Cup, but still much needs to be done to compete in a World Cup. I mean, I'll be honest, I sit here and I go, if this is 10 nil in a men's World Cup, are we getting the same questions, to be quite honest, you know? I mean, I think a World Cup, it's, you know, it's, um, it is about competing. It is, it is about peaking. It is about priming your players ready for the next game. They see it as this is a world championship. They are going to play their best for 90 minutes. And that's what they did. They want to get players in a good rhythm and a good form. They want to build momentum. This is a long tournament. They want to get off to a great start. They obviously did. You're also talking about players living the dream of playing in a World Cup, for many of them the first time. And, you know, how do you, how do you tell them, don't go forward, don't try to score, don't celebrate? That goes against the, the natural instincts of an athlete and particularly an American athlete. Stephen Goff writes about soccer for The Post. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 